The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook if you sign up for a two-week trial of their service. Audible has 40,000 titles available to download. For all the details, follow the links at guardian.co.uk slash audible. The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Aditya Chakraborty. This week, as the luck of the Irish runs out, we'll examine how Britain's nearest neighbour got into such a mess. And as the authority of Ireland's ruling coalition is shot to pieces, an economic crisis turns into a political one. We'll discuss what happens next in Dublin. Plus, how exposed are British banks to the latest flare-up? And will the €90 billion bailout be enough to stop the crisis spreading throughout the Eurozone? In the studio, I've got Jill Trainer, the Guardian's banking expert, Larry Elliott, our economics editor, and Paul Mason, BBC Newsnight's economics editor and author of an eyewitness account of the financial crisis called Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, published by Verso. On the line in Dublin, our island correspondent, Henry MacDonald, is standing by. So, the game's up. For the past week, Dublin has been telling voters, journalists and, crucially, investors that it needed no rescue funds. Then, on Sunday, Prime Minister Brian Cowan admitted to an unsurprised audience that yes, he was seeking a bailout from the European Union and the International Monetary Fund. I can confirm that the government has today decided that Ireland apply uh, for financial assistance uh, to the European Union. The request of the government was transmitted to the European authorities this evening. The European authorities have agreed to our request. A formal process of negotiation will now commence that will lead to the provision of assistance on the basis of a programme to be negotiated by the government with the European Commission and the International Monetary Fund in liaison with the European Central Bank. The cash comes in two parts. One will prop up the country's failing banks. The other will allow Ireland to continue with matters of government. Inevitably, conditions in small print are still being fought over, but the deal, part financed by Britain, is believed to be around €90 billion. Euros. It marks a formal end to a decade in which the so-called Celtic Tiger boomed with inward investment from some of the world's largest companies. And voters enjoyed a property bubble that finally burst last year as credit froze in the world-stricken banking system. The human cost of the crisis in Ireland is just beginning to play out, but for now, people on the streets of Dublin seemed relieved that a deal has been agreed. It's an unfortunate day for the country and um, it's just just the way it is, you know, not not more, more to say really. I'm not so worse, to be honest. I just actually feel really let down, really let down. We put our trust in so-called government and they let us down so badly. I mean, they should have done something a lot, lot sooner. It's not good news, really, is it? <laughs> I don't think anyone's too happy about it, but... Um, I suppose just the fact that people are kept in the dark up to this, that's the most important thing. Like, and, um, I suppose you just get on with it, have to deal with it now, I suppose, that's it. This country is a disgrace. I have a young family and uh, things are going to be tough. Um, I think it's, there's a lot of uh, disappointment out there and a lot of people don't really know what the next, uh, what tomorrow brings, you know. So uh, we have to try and kind of pull together, get on with it. They've sold everybody out and just sick, sick. I can't believe it. Jill Trainer, first question to you. Why Ireland and why now? Why Ireland? Why now? Um, It seemed to me that ever since Greece had run into problems at the start of the year that the markets had been waiting for the next target 
and it was probably always going to be Ireland. Its banking system had always felt as if it was uh, very fragile, despite the fact that the Irish government had thrown up 50 billion euros at it um, after the collapse of Lehman Brothers two years ago. You could see from data coming out of the European Central Bank that Ireland's banks were increasingly reliant on the liquidity schemes that the European governments had put together to try and help out banks. And I guess it was, you know, the moment came, sadly. Paul Mason, you've just come back from Dublin. Um, the country has to go cap in hand to the, the IMF and the Eurozone. It's essentially taking all this money to bail out a dead-in-the-water banking system. How are the Irish people taking that? Well, I found resignation, actually. Resignation and obviously a lot of bitterness. But the repeated comments when you, as a TV journalist, go out and do your vox pops is, um, thank God for the IMF, at least we don't have to vote for them. They're not part of this sort of paternalistic elite who run the country. But I don't think yet... Um, the Irish people have understood what level of austerity is being plotted there in the Merrion Hotel opposite the TD's office. Where, where the IMF is holding Yeah, the, the, the IMF are there and uh, they picked the wrong hotel because all the satellite trucks are just below them. And in fact, they had to scarper from the bar last night because a bunch of financial journalists were already standing there. So it's, it, it, it's a slight passport to Pimlico element to the whole thing going on downtown Dublin. But in the rest of Ireland, I don't think they've even understood what is going to hit them. Henry MacDonald, there was um, what's now already assumed the status of a classic editorial by the Irish Times last yeah. week, I think, on was it, and the title was, Was It For This? The, the, the line from Yates. There's a sense here that after having fought off the British, the, the, the editorial said that the Ireland had sort of suffered a huge blow to its national identity. What do you think? I think that, I, I mean I could not believe. It. I thought the Irish Times had lost its senses. I really, I really did. I thought they that had a rush of blood to the head. Uh, I fox popped a number of business students, young people under twenties and late teens, in the financial district, of a place called the National College of Ireland, uh, last weekend. And each and every one of them, twenty-five out of twenty-six, said they did, they were glad the IMF were in. They were glad the ECB were in. That they would do a better job. They were much more pragmatic and realistic than. Uh, than the, than the sentiment in the Irish Times editorial. Maybe among the older generation, there's a sense of a, a national loss. But, you know, the, the generation that are going to totally turn the economy around, or if they don't emigrate, um, they were far less sentimental about, about things like national sovereignty. And, you know, they've been living in an era where of global interdependency and Ireland being an export-led country and, you know, having to go around the world to get jobs. So... I, I question that. I think, nonetheless, though, there will be a there will be a day of reckoning for the Fianna Fáil Green Coalition whenever the election is called. So before we get to the election, uh, Larry, there's uh, there'll be details of exactly what the austerity measures are. What sort of things might we see? Well, higher taxes. I'd have thought were absolute bolt on certainty. Cuts in public spending, probably cuts in benefits too. And I, I think they'll go through the they'll go through the card. And uh, I think Paul's right. I mean, the IMF packages always come at a price, and for Ireland, the package is going to be very, very high. And I think that the, Euro the other European countries are going to insist on it because they want to make an example of Ireland to other countries to put put your fiscal health in order. So the, the the price exacted for Ireland is going to be very, very painful, and I think probably self defeating because what they'll do is kill off the domestic economy and absolutely you know scupper any chances of the growth that Ireland really needs in order to get. It's, it's debt and deficit levels down to more manageable levels. I think that what, 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 what's happened in Ireland is that we've, they've reached the end of the road for this strategy, which is deflate your way out of trouble. What about this famous corporation tax rate of 12.5%? I think that will stay. Um, I think that will stay because... 
A, I think it's a it's an absolute red line for the Irish government, and I think they would keep the talks going for a long, long enough time to make sure that there's real contagion across the rest of the eurozone, um, if if that was insisted upon. And the other thing is having the IMF in town is actually quite useful for that because the IMF like low corporate taxes, so they will probably be quite supportive of the Irish government. So I think that the low corporation tax will stay. I don't think that I don't think that is going to go. Henry McDonald, it strikes me as a funny kind of red red line to have, where your main thing is that you want a low tax rate to lure in multinational companies and the other thing you're absolutely insistent on is that the bank should be able to pay back foreign foreign creditors well i mean also the banks are the most there are along with the politicians are the most loathed institutions in the state and what's been blindingly obvious given the size of the bailout and what ireland needs is that the banks were telling lies to the government in 2008 the banks were given a guarantee that they're they would be shored up by public money they're virtually in state ownership the, the private irish banks uh, the, the main ones, and uh, they have lied and lied and lied about how, how much they actually owe and what sort of toxic debt they have. So, it, when are they going to be able to pay these pay these loans back? God only knows. Uh, as for the budget, I would make this point: there's a, there's intense pressure this morning. I understand from the Europeans on the leaders of the two main opposition parties in Ireland, Labour and Fine Gael. Um, the, the mathematics at the minute don't stack up in terms of passing that budget on December the 7th. There are a number of backbench Fianna Fáil TDs who are trying to save their own skin and who will probably vote against the government, as will two key independent deputies, members of the Doyle. So the Europeans, I understand, have been in contact with the two main opposition parties to see is there some, can they abstain, for instance, on the vote uh, next month, whatever, because the Europeans are absolutely insistent that this budget needs to be done before there's an election. The key... Um problem of contagion, of course, is with the banks. And I think the more we understand about the Irish banks, the more we understand there are many levels of potential contagion. The obvious one is the European banks' exposure to their debt. There's another one that I don't think is quite so obvious and is a little bit of a mystery to me. But yesterday, Moody's threatened to downgrade... Um, multi-notch downgrade. Multi-notch downgrade of Ireland's sovereign debt. This means that the collateral that Irish banks then pose... Uh, postars, as it were, with the ECB for this 130 billion, then actually loses its value, and it may not be investment grade at this point. Um, depending on what happens, the ECB could end up sitting on 130 billion euros worth of of near junk debt, and then has to sell it on the market. I mean, this is another element of exposure. And actually, as Henry points out, there is this other aspect of this, and Ireland is left with quite a strong hand given the, the amount of contagion it could uh, cause. The, the third bit of it, of course, is it's the, sh- the, the way in which Ireland has acted as a sort of semi-offshore outpost. And, and I, I read the keeping of the corporation taxes as, as uh, just keeping Ireland's status as a, as a sort of money recycling venue for the European banking system. I don't think the Germans, I don't think the French want to abolish that at all. I, I think the point about the European Central Bank... Uh, and the credit rating of Ireland is is a crucial one, an important one. And I think it's also why Moody's yesterday was very careful to say that it would remain above investment grade. I mean, I think they can cut it six notches before it b- before it reaches one notch above. Uh, you know, the troubled, okay. yeah. the troubled non-investment grade, we'll call it politely. Um, so, you know... Uh, let's see. But, I mean, that's obviously something to be thinking about and it was clearly a problem for 
the, the markets when you know when Greece is facing downgrades, or their although their debt isn't as widely. Just, one, one, of the, so, one of the things that we, Jill and I were talking about earlier today was that people in the markets are now saying, well, all these Irish banks passed the European stress test back in the summer, yeah, yeah, uh, and it doesn't say very much for quite a lot of the rest of the European bank, and it raises doubts about whether there are other banks out there that, if you had rather more rigorous stress tests, would have would have failed. Them. They never tested for a sovereign default. Yeah. Jill, just before we move on, just give us a quick up sum of how bad trouble Irish banks are in. Well, it's um, I mean, it's a fabulous story from a reporter's (laughs) point of view. Um, Clearly, it's a it's a tragic story if you're somebody who had relied on the banking system to keep your economy afloat. I mean, Anglo-Irish Bank appears to be riddled with fraud and it's all its directors have gone and are the subject of investigations. Uh, At least two of them are in the process of bankruptcy or being or have declared themselves bankrupt. Um, we've got allied Irish banks, which desperately uh, has admitted that it needs to raise at least six billion now on the markets to bolster its capital. And that's even before the IMF come in and demand even higher capital ratios. It's already 19% owed by the state. It's going to be nationalised, my best guess is, by, by the time this process is over. Bank of Ireland share price is falling like a stone again today because the 36% stake that the Irish taxpayer owns in Bank of Ireland is also going to go up dramatically. We're going to see a dramatic change in the way the Irish banking system operates. Somebody yesterday was talking about the fact that maybe what the Irish state will end up with is two big, strong banks that can see the economy through this current downturn get going again, be strong, be confident, get the deposits in and then try and operate on their own. Britain is believed to have chipped in around 7 billion euros to the bailout, which works out at about 100 quid from everyone in the country. Or, to put it another way, the total amount due to be cut from public spending this financial year. Or, indeed, the total amount about to be paid out as Christmas bonuses in the city. Anyway, the Chancellor George Osborne has been keen to show Britain's support for a friend in need. The arguments against Britain joining the euro are well rehearsed, not least by me. But while I told you so may be correct, it doesn't amount to an economic policy. Mr Speaker, when this coalition government came into office, Britain was in the financial danger zone. We have taken action to put our own house in order, whereas we were once seen as part of a problem we are now part of the solution. Ireland is a friend in need and it is in our national interest that we should be prepared to help them at this difficult time and I commend this statement to the House. George Osborne there. Lest we forget it was he who held up Ireland a few years ago as a shining example of light touch regulation and low tax. Larry Elliott, is this this a case of a friend in need being a friend indeed? Why is Osborne doing this? Oh, it's just pure naked self-interest I mean, there's no way that Osborne would court the wrath of the Eurosceptics on the Tory backbenches unless there was something in it for Britain and the something in it for Britain is that our banks are very heavily exposed to the Irish banking system and to the Irish economy, they've lent a lot of money to Irish construction firms and the Irish housing market sector so there's a there's a there's, a, there's an imperative there, the other thing is that Ireland's a very big market for British goods I mean, 5% of UK exports or more go to Ireland double what goes to the four biggest bricks together. So it's four, twice as much as... Ten times to, as much goes to China. Yeah, yeah so you know, it's a very, very big market. It's, it's one of the few countries in the world that Britain still has a trade surplus with. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of, kind of as a rarity value of its own. Uh, oh, don't forget, there's the, the impact of Northern Ireland in, in this. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 there will be a knock-on effect in terms of construction and, and expenditure in particular. There's the, the, the border towns of Northern Ireland have done well out of the... 
southern expenditure, the southern consumers coming up and, and spending money when it was cheaper, especially around Christmas time. You know, if, if there's no money, people don't have money in their pockets, they're not going to go north of the border to, uh, to shop. So it has a knock-on effect in Northern Ireland as well in terms of the economy. Jill, how exposed are Britain's banks to Ireland? Well, um, the data pr- produced by the Bank for International Settlements, which is the kind of central banker's bank, they're the geeks who keep all the details about everything, that the, the data they have appear to show that, that there's about £140 billion worth of exposure uh, to Ireland held within the banking system here. We know that RBS has got 53 billion of that. I'll repeat that, 53 billion of that total is held by Royal Bank of Scotland, a bank in which the taxpayer in this country already owns an 84% stake. I don't think it needs any more explanation. And remember one other thing, and that is that the toxicity of the debts that the Irish banks are sitting on is getting worse. I mean, if you impose a fiscal austerity, if you double the pain into the economy, I mean, some of these some of these um, developments are already quasi-worthless. NARMA, the, debt, the government debt agency, owns loads of them. And I was in one yesterday where the, the landlord, who is himself, you know, owes the government 200 million euros, uh, basically says, you know, you can't really even manage these assets on a normal basis. You can't suddenly say, hey, I've got a tenant. Do you want to rent my shop? Because you then have to go to the government. These assets are just sinking in value relentlessly and that just changes the ball game. Yeah. It makes you wonder if NAMA was the right way to go about it and the, fa- and the control that they've given NAMA over these assets is, is, is quite an interesting debate that probably can't go on here. But you do wonder whether or not they, NAMA will in some way have to be recreated in a don't, different don't way. Don't you think it's sensible to split the bad stuff of, off from the good stuff? I, I mean, I'm not doubting that for one minute. Clearly, we've got the asset protection scheme, which is the only thing that keeps Royal mm. Bank of Scotland alive. And we often forget about it, I think. But we, we, we've got a lot of RBS assets parked oh. away in a, in a sort of bad type yeah. bank. I, I, I'm just suggesting maybe the way NAMA operates and the control that it exerts over assets is quite a difficult what, thing. What, what do you mean by that, though? Well, it's it's to Paul's point about the fact that that guy, it doesn't matter how hard he tries to proactively go and pay back his deck by walking the streets and getting people to come and rent his shops, he still needs the permission of the people, who, you know, of NAMA to put them in there. I think the other problem is going to be that um, even if you spit off the bad stuff into, into NAMA, even the even the good stuff, I mean, residential mortgage loans, they're going to they're going to become increasingly toxic if you kill off the economy. I mean, it, it, this all assumes that the Irish government can actually get the growth rates it's talking about for the next two or three years. I think there's a it's stupendously optimistic, and it's quite likely that the Irish economy will continue to contract, house prices will continue to fall, and therefore there's going to be more people in negative equity, more people unemployed, and therefore the banks are going to be sitting on even more non-performing loans. So they. they Tell you what, they, those the, the, the good Irish banks will need to be very well well capitalised. I think. Here's a frightening figure uh, from a financial agency based in the city of London, but Irish owned. They said that uh, last week to me that one out of every eight mortgage holders in the Irish Republic is up to three months in the rears with their, 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 yeah. their mortgage. Now, that's payment. a scary figure. Yeah, very very scary, and scary for the banks because it increases their. Henry, against that figure, then why is it? Why does it seem to British eyes, at least, as though there's not much more protest against okay. the bankers? Why is it that Alan Dukes is allowed to go on television and say, "Well, actually, what we need is a huge injection of extra money, and you're going to have to pay for it"? There is a lot. <laughs> that's the big surprise of all. I mean, being on the streets of Dublin, it is. I think Paul got that red resignation. Now, I think the big test will come this Saturday. There's a trade union demonstration. They're expecting between eighty and hundred thousand people to turn up in the centre of Dublin. Um, whether or not we'll, we'll see disturbances is another matter. Some trade unions are predicting trouble on the streets, uh, not only this Saturday, but 
uh, in ongoing ongoing weeks and months uh, in, as we continue to live through this crisis. But thus far, the Irish, I think, the Irish work, I, I believe, conservative the small sea than some of their Mediterranean or European counterparts. They, um, I think, it's partly because they're a property obsessed. Uh, Owning democracy, that the, the, they have much more attachment to the rule of law and the stability, if you like, in their society, and obviously having come out of a, a war of independence and a civil war and all the the memories of that, I think maybe you know the Irish like a bit of stability in their lives. But you know, who's to say? I mean, the, the anger is boiling. There's a boiling point on the streets, and one thing that anger. Well, what would you point to to, sh- to to show that? Well, just you, you know, we, I was watching a program on RT, RT television last night in Dublin uh, called Frontline, and the anger from the audience was palpable, directed mainly at the Fianna Fáil minister, who was who was brave enough to, to go live on in front of in front of the people, but uh, very very angry, very very upset, but also upset that the banks. We talk about the banks. There's actually not a single banker that's been charged with anything in Ireland. Uh, it's my understanding that in Austria, for example, there are 20 bankers. Uh, facing imprisonment over, over bank fraud there. There's not a single one in Ireland, and it's been indicated to me from my own sources in the Garda Síochána that there may not be any of the people that, the people who've become notorious during this crisis who, who will face any form of, of, of legal redress or legal, I should say, punishment because um, uh, essentially they have all the big lawyers who can defend them and that the Garda Síochána's financial crime unit is, is, is understaffed. So that might be a thing that... Like the blue touch paper, like if, if, if the bankers get away with it. Henry, I was watching that program in the pub actually, and I think they had trouble uh, defending the screen. Uh, it was the the audience in the pub was just as angry. But one thing I kept picking up in Dublin was this phrase, Second Republic." Now, what you've got is people from that whole world of Facebook. Google, the, the, the people who work in the new economy in Ireland, many bankers as well, yes. they, they've, they've started to talk as if this crisis could be the opportunity to more or less refound the Irish Republic. Um, and it's, it's just something that's in the ether. And I'm not sure whether there's anybody theorised it, or, uh, but it's something that, that I, what, it's the end of the paternalism. It, Fianna Gael, Fianna Foyle, you know, they're seen as basically two sides of the same coin. Most people I met didn't want to vote even. Uh, they were quite happy to see Cohen go but to, are you picking anything up there about the whole idea of a more constitutional approach to resolving the crisis the problem i i, I would think if there, if there was if there was a proposal for a national government if, if the opposition agreed to it with me you know, you know there, there some kind of national government with an element of Fianna Fáil breaking off and forming some new sort of centrist party you might that i think the public would like that but but Ireland's two and a half party system is has proved durable, and I think we're going to get a Fine Gael Labour, Labour government inevitably within the next six weeks, uh, whether the election is Christmas or whether the election is in the new year. And the problem is this here Fine Gael and Labour have two different priorities. Fine Gael have always been prepared to cost cut. They were behind some of the most brutal budgets in the 1980s. They backed Charles Hockey's austerity programme in the late, late 80s and the so called TALA strategy. Um, whereas the Labour Party is the party very much of the Irish public sector. Now, I don't know how you're, they're going to square the circle here between you know defending public sector jobs and wages uh, against the demands of the IMF and ECB to, to cut the public sector, to drive down uh, the, the, the cost of, of, of wages in, in the public services. For instance, 70% of expenditure in health in Ireland is on actual wages within the health service, not actually on, on services. So... You know, I think Labour and Fianna Gael are going to have to face some difficult days ahead as well. They they will romp home. They will they they will be they will have a huge working majority, but they will have to do 
they may be forced by the IMF and the ECB to do the same as what is being asked of Brian Cowan and his administration at present. Um, Paul, it, it can look to, to people who just see trouble in Greece, trouble in Ireland, possible trouble in Portugal and trouble in Spain, as though this is just one big sort of European tragedy. And yet you might say that each country is unhappy in its own way. What are the differences between Greece and Ireland, do you think? Well, I mean, historically, Ireland played by the rules of the Eurozone. It didn't play by the rules of the banking system, although nobody spotted that it wasn't. Um, As a state, you know, it, it fell very rapidly into deficit. I think... Look, when the markets look at these issues and they take their bets, especially the more speculative end of the markets, I think this is how they see it. Germany, if you give Germany a referendum tomorrow, they'd vote to expel Greece from the Eurozone. If you gave Greece a referendum tomorrow, I highly likely would vote to leave the Eurozone. Who's going to bet against against Greece leaving the Eurozone? Only you know, only de- delay in the democratic process you know, actually prevents it. And I think there are many bets stacked up on Greece leaving. I've seen a, you know, a, a bond analyst note today talking you know, quite concretely about how Germany could restructure the euro into two zones. This is a theme now, or meme. It's out there in the markets, a strong Deutschmark zone, maybe including Finland, Austria, and the Netherlands, and the rest. The rest could then devalue 40%, and it would then just wipe out at a stroke Germany's mercantilist advantage. But the alternative is that Germany has to do something heroic and actually just bail them all out forever until... Europe comes back. Can you see that happening? The Germans aren't going to do that, I don't think. When this current 700 billion euros runs out, which it will do if they, if they have to bail out Spain, there's no way that the Germans are going to foot the bill for another bailout. It's just not going to happen. Well, as Larry says, the key question for leaders across the European Union is this. Will the action to bail out Ireland prevent a run on the next weakest nation, Portugal, or, and this is where it gets really scary, Spain? I asked the Guardian's Madrid correspondent, Giles Tremlett, whether that was the view in Spain and Portugal. Well, uh, it depends who you're talking to. The governments, of course, deny that they have uh, any need of bailouts or help. If you talk to analysts and people in the markets, well, they're inclined to think that Spain doesn't need help, but that Portugal probably will sometime in the future. Ireland has a banking problem, which Portugal doesn't have. But then Portugal has other problems, um, mainly to do with the size of its deficit, the size of its debt, and its poor potential growth. So the feeling there is that you know, at some stage, perhaps uh, not until next year, they're cutting expenditure. There's a 2011 budget which wants to cut the uh, deficit to, I think, 4.5%. That means pay cut for civil servants of 5%. The problem with Portugal is more to do with whether they will really be able to deliver on that. And then, of course, trade unions are not happy about it. And tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, we'll see what is being billed as the biggest uh, general strike in Portugal for more than two decades. From Madrid, the fundamentals look good that Spain should be able to weather this situation, but there, there are nerves produced mainly by Portugal, it being so close and uh, Spanish banks um, having lent a lot of money there. And there's a feeling from some quarters that uh, the socialist government now has to proceed faster with uh, structural reforms, uh, especially pensions and perhaps some more labour reform. Giles Tremlett there. Um, Paul... 
what bit have you got that the contagion will spread further? I think they've got a good chance of, of stopping the contagion if the Irish government can just settle down. Um, as Henry says there, they've probably got no option but to sign up to something. So I don't think it's, con- I don't think it's sovereign debt contagion in this iteration of the crisis that is going to, w- to wipe them out. Um, but I do think it is, it's, it's down to the, level, it's the, the, the political statecraft in the Eurozone's leadership. I mean, I was uh, in, in Brussels last week. Watch, the, the key thing is to watch them as they do their press conferences and see whether you think they have any idea what they're doing. And I have to say that oh, I don't think they have. <laughs> I, I, just, I, don't, I don't think there is a, is a sort of statecraft at work at the top of it. It's a series of negotiations. And that's the worry. It's not really, does this or that country fall out? It's the worry of, is there a strategy to contain this? Is that what the markets are thinking? Well, I mean, I was talking to one of the uh, top financials analysts yesterday who was saying to me, you know, look, the markets are moving faster than the European policymakers are ever going to move. And his point, he, he's somebody who is very concerned about cont- contagion, very concerned about Portugal, very con- concerned about Spain obviously because he's a banks analyst and he's very concerned about, you know, if we get to Spain, Spain's got a lot of very big banks. To the point about Portugal and contagion, if you look at the way the market has behaved since the Irish bailout, it's done exactly what the policymakers would have not wanted to happen, i.e. the cost of buying insurance against the chance of Portugal defaulting has becoming more expensive. So the market is more concerned about Portugal defaulting now than it was last weekend. Why? Why is that? Well, we just had a hundred billion quid for well, euros poured into that. You'd have thought that uh, you know, as as Larry said in his column this morning, you'd have thought that not, you know that hundred billion euros, ninety billion euros, might have bought you more than a morning of respite. But the reality is that the market actually did only give the markets a morning of respite, and and the anxiety now is that Portugal is indeed in the sights of of, of the markets. I think Portugal almost certain to be the next one to be targeted i think that's baked in the cake pretty much that portugal will be the next the next one in the firing line and i mean the, the, what you so see you think it'll be subject to kind of irish style squeeze i, I mean I, yeah i mean it, it worries me that the portuguese prime minister said yesterday that there's no need for a bailout which normally means that you're only 72 hours away from the imf <laughs> arriving um and uh, I mean, the fact is that you know all these countries on the periphery of, of, of the eurozone fa- are facing the same problem which is a structural lack of competitiveness and that problem does not go away you can you can provide them with liquidity but you're not actually stol- solving the, the the structural problem these countries have which is that their cost base is higher than the, that those of germany and they get less and less competitive as every year goes by and and, and that's why ultimately um, they have a choice, which is either you grind out improvements in your productivity year after year after year at the expense of the domestic economy and much higher levels of unemployment and lower levels of public services, or you decide that you've had enough and that you um, you leave the euro and and devalue and and, and default and, and and start again somewhere. And I think that that is where we are. That that decision is rapidly approaching for a number of European countries, obviously Greece, but actually for Portugal as well. So if, as now seems increasingly likely, Portugal needs assistance, where does that leave the euro as a currency? That's the question I asked George Magnus, senior economist at Swiss investment bank UBS. Well, I don't think, as many people have suggested, that the euro is in imminent danger of breaking up. Uh, It's in too many countries' interests, including uh, the smaller countries and Germany and France, for example, too many people's interests for this political glue to keep 
the whole structure together um, because a, you know, a disintegration of the euro would be catastrophic for, for the European economy and for unemployment. Having said that, it is really up to European leaders to, to try to fix this, obviously, as quickly as they can and to prevent it from spreading to Spain uh, because I think European financial resources are adequate for Greece and Ireland and Portugal but not for Spain. And so this Irish bailout and possibly the Portuguese one that may come early next year, I think has to ring fence, you know, the smaller countries and, and prevent it from becoming uh, a Spanish issues as well. Because if it became a Spanish issue, then I think there really would be an existential problem for the Eurozone and, and also for, uh, for the major countries, France and Germany in particular, uh, about the, the limits that, that to which they would go in order to, to to guarantee cross subsidize you know transfers to to one of their larger members in this case Spain so it, it this is not to say that the euro has you know guaranteed survival ad, ad nauseam uh, merely that you know it doesn't look like it's going to break up in the immediate future but it's very important that these institutional deficiencies are fixed otherwise they could be a much more serious uh, problem for the euro Paul just to go back to your point earlier um the Eurozone seems to lurch from bailout to bailout with an absence of an overall plan. What sign is there, if any, that there will be a, a concrete plan for the, for, the, for the rest of the Eurozone? Well, unless they're working on one in secret, uh, I don't think there are any signs. Because, look, what is, what is the evidence that we have? The repeated, the Seoul summit and the Deauville meeting, they, they couldn't even agree on a concrete and, and coherent plan to get beyond 2013 for the bailout mechanism. We're already hearing in Britain that the Brits are going to veto any future bailout mechanism, although playing along with the, the current one. You see, if this, if J.M. Keynes were sitting here, and it was the start of World War Two, you know, even at the beginning of World War Two, Keynes and Harry Dexter White sat down and said, what's the post-war world going to look like, even when they were losing? What you need is for somebody to say, what is the post-crisis euro going to look like? And then to sell that to the European people, including the people who are going to have to pay through the nose for it, which is Southern Europe. Absent that, what you're going to get is just, I think, political fragmentation like you're getting in Ireland. Ireland is just, it's not a special case. I think I'm seeing the political dynamics in Ireland. You know, I've got in my bag... The Daily Star in Ireland. Uh, I don't know whether I can quote it on the Guardian's. Uh, I think you can popular. actually. Well, it, it, the, the the headline is uh, something along the lines of "What a bunch of gobshites." Useless gobshites. Yeah, useless gobshites. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 you know, you could see the sun running that if Britain ended up as it nearly did in May with a sovereign debt crisis. Until there's a vision to subscribe to, it's gonna it's gonna fly from the centre. Well, Keynes taking up that point, Keynes would say right now that what the Germans should do is reflate their economy and help every other European country out. I mean, that's Keynes would say that there are you know there are obligations on both sides here. It's not only to deficit countries to to deflate, but on, on surplus countries to reflate, and and, and that's yeah, but, that, that's that's not that's not on the agenda. I mean, yeah, but Larry, to that, the Germans would seem to say nine. Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. It's not on the agenda, and in fact, every European country, including Germany, is going to be tightening fiscal policy, yeah, but, year, which in the current circumstances is totally crazy. Just go back to that point raised by, by Paul. I mean, one of the reasons we've got this euro is because it, apparently the eurozone was meant to shelter European countries from the interminable cruel forces of, of, of the market. And yet what we see well, is that worked, a, cri- a crisis comes along and then the voters are, are sacrificed for the banks. Yeah. Well, that's why the single currency, I think, is 
um, is facing an existential crisis. I think that there, there, there has to be a limit to the amount of pain you can inflict upon your own people. And I think that there, that, that point is rapidly approaching for a number of European countries. And that's why I think it's, it's no longer unthinkable to think that the Eurozone might, might break up. I mean, I mean, I think the idea of having a two-speed Europe is, you know, is out there, you know, is, is, is out there in the market, bound to be. Because the only the only the only alternative is for the sort of radical steps that Paul's talking about. You know, the sort of Keynesian argument would be that the, the only there are two ways of doing this. One is to ref, to reflate at the at the centre, or to deflate at the periphery. Um, and you know, at the moment, it's all about deflating at the periphery, and that and the stresses and strains of that are enormous. And I think you know, um, it, you know Greece, Ireland, Portugal, and and Spain is definitely uh, the real the, the real risk here. I think. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Spain, they've already got twenty percent unemployment, forty percent youth unemployment. They've seen a forty percent fall in house prices. I, mean, I know most of their major banks allegedly pass the stress test, but those sorts of developments are, are, are bound to have put real pressure on their on their on their banking system, however well run it run it is. And if if, if those pressures start to start to feed out into the markets, then we will have a very very serious crisis. On I'd just say one thing about Spain. It's um, I'm not so pessimistic on Spain's you know general solvency. Um, I've had my head fixed repeatedly by the Spanish authorities over this. I've been doing a very negative report on them. I think even if you give them the benefit of the doubt, though, on the banking crisis side, one thing that st- sticks out with Spain is that their population is not going to have fiscal austerity forever. It won't take it again. I mean, in, in that sense, they're very different than the Irish and far more militant and organised than the Greeks. This is a this is an urban working class culture you know you go to catalonia million people on the streets for independence you've just been romantic i'm not i'm not i mean because because spain is has lived that dream you know all these countries have lived a dream that's over haven't they ireland greece greece you know sort of upward mobility ireland the celtic tiger but spain's dream was of this kind of stable democracy and you can you if you go you can see the strains of that pulling apart and the youth who went on the streets to celebrate winning the World Cup, you cannot believe that they're going to sit there and watch, you know, the pubs, the bars, the cappuccino bars, the factories they work in close. I just can't believe it. No, and I preface everything I say with the fact that, I ha- that there is no evidence at the moment that this is the case. But you have to remember that Santander, Spain's biggest bank, also has a massive presence on our high street and has just started planting its logo all across our streets. So if, if this crisis does get to Spain, and if, and I stress if, Santander becomes a problem, then clearly the, the authorities here will also be very interested in the Spanish banking system in the way that they're very interested in ensuring that the, the Irish banking system doesn't fail. Henry MacDonald, I think last, last word should go to you. I just want you to pick up on Paul's point. Do you think that the idea of the, the Irish dream, do you think it is over? I think the dream of uh, never-ending soaring property prices is gone. I think uh, there was an Irish writer on radio today, Colm Tobin, very, very respected novelist. He said, we're going to be entering after the age of austerity. We'll be entering an age of prudence. And I think you'll see a cultural shift in the way the Irish look, look, look upon you know, their financial affairs. And, and you'll, you'll see a lot more savings and people will be far more cautious. I mean, at the height of the boom, ridiculous things were happening. People were buying properties not, Two and three properties in Ireland, maybe owning one. For example, the Irish bought an island off Cape, one of the, on Cape Verde, for instance. They turned it into an entire golfing kind of a ghetto. All those kind of extravagant lavishness that the Irish enjoyed during the Celtic Tiger years is going. As I say, I, th- I think Tobin's got it right. From an age of austerity into an age of prudence, and I think you'll see a different generation of Irish uh, consumers and producers over the next sort of, I'd say, next few decades. 
Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Jill Trainer, Larry Elliott, Henry McDonald, Giles Tremlett and George Magnus. Let me just give another plug to Paul Mason's book, Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, which is published in a new edition by Verso. The producer was Phil Maynard. I'm Adit Chakravorty. The Business Podcast is back next week. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio. Don't forget to start your free 14-day trial of audible.co.uk and to download your free audiobook. Head to guardian.co.uk slash audible.